to the Very Well Mind podcast. We've interviewed over 100 authors, experts, entrepreneurs, athletes, musicians, and others to help you learn strategies to care for your mental health. This episode is hosted by psychotherapist and best-selling author Amy Morin. Now let's get into the episode. Do you have trouble reaching big goals? Do you ever think that you have so many goals to work on that you aren't sure where to start? Do you ever get caught up comparing your life to someone else's? If you answered yes to any of those questions, today's episode is for you. I'm talking to Dr. Myron Roll. Dr. Roll is an NFL player turned neurosurgeon. When he was in college at Florida State University, he was a standout student and football player. He was offered a Rhodes Scholarship and had to make the decision about whether to join the NFL or pursue his education. He opted to pursue his education first. He later joined the NFL before returning to school again to become a neurosurgeon. He says he was able to succeed in so many different areas of his life because he focused on getting 2% better every single day. Now he's written a book called The 2% Way. Some of the things he talks about today are how to break down big goals into manageable action steps, how to stay motivated, and how to find meaning and purpose in life. Make sure to stick around until the end of the episode for the therapist's take. It's the part of the show where I'll give you my take on Dr. Roll's strategies and explain how you can apply them to your own life. So here's Dr. Myron Roll on how becoming 2% better every day can help you grow mentally stronger. Dr. Myron Roll, welcome to the Very Well Mind podcast. Thank you. It's exciting to talk to you. So I have to explain uh, the story of how I learned about you and what happened a few weeks ago. So my producer is telling me this story. He's from Florida and he's watching this FSU game years ago. And he's telling me about how this Rhodes Scholar comes into this game and he's late. It's the second quarter and the crowd goes wild and they congratulate him when he comes out onto the field. And I was like, oh, this is a this is a really cool story. And then later that day, I kid you not, I get an email from your publicist telling me that about this Rhodes Scholar who'd written a book and ends up in the NFL and is now a neurosurgeon. So I said to my producer, is this the person you just happened to be telling me about earlier today? To which he says, yes. And I thought, oh, we have to get him on the podcast. And the, the chances of him just telling me about you and then me having to hearing about you by two different people in the same day is pretty small. But this is sort of the story of your life. The statistical probability of you doing all of these things that you've done is pretty small. So for our audience who doesn't know, you, you were this college football star. Then you have to make a decision whether to go to Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar, go to the NFL. You choose to go to Oxford first, but then you end up in the NFL later, and now you're a neurosurgeon. However, you figured out how to do all of this where it's just a coincidence that my producer and your publicist happened to email me the same day. All of these other things you did are because of the hard work you put in. Fair enough? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, hard work, um, you know, some uh, outstanding support from family, friends, um, you know, my, my faith, uh, my spiritual sort of uh, grounding. And um, yeah, just some wonderful mentors, too who've been able to help me along the way. So it's been a, it's been an outstanding journey. That's really serendipitous how, how all of it happened. I didn't I know that story. So it's really cool <laughs> that we're here now. 
When she emailed me, I thought, I'm going to tell her, hey, I just happened to hear about him for the first time three, four hours ago. <laughs> now here you are. So I was thrilled that you had this book coming out. And it's a really good book. Can you explain what the 2% way means? Absolutely. So, uh, you know, my football coach at Florida State University, his name was Mickey Andrews. He was the first one to introduce me to this 2% way um, topic. It, it, it's this small goal of daily improvement, get 2% better every day. And he would challenge me and my teammates to get 2% better in practice, um, our stamina, our ability to tackle, our ability to catch the football. And then he'd go on the whiteboard after practice and put on the board, Myron Roll, he got 1% better or 2% better. And the guys would vote on it in the locker room, hold us accountable. But I just loved the way it was a realistic, tangible goal of daily self-improvement. And I extrapolated that ideology to life. And so the, any chance encounter I have, any book I read, any experience I have, any video I watch, conference I attend, I'm trying to extract 2% from that to add it to my own journey, to move onward and upward. And then th this book is really about taking larger challenges, seemingly daunting tasks or issues or goals, and breaking them down piece by piece and getting 2% better consistently every single day. And if you make those small little levels of improvement, those small wins, a month from now, six months from now, a year from now, you can look back and say, look how far I've come. So it really started for my football coach. I've taken it to life. Anything that I hashtag online is always hashtag 2%. It's how I live my life now as a physician, as a father, uh, formerly as an athlete. And, and um, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a good process to sort of make things seem manageable and practical for you as you move forward. One of the things I liked about it is you didn't just say, okay, I'm going to become a 2% better football player. You broke it down into the skills, the things that you wanted to learn into much more specific things, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So it's not just being an athlete. Uh, it's not even just being a physician. It's literally 2% better in any aspect of your life that you want to um, you know, see progress and growth. For instance, you know, one for me, it was um, my ability to talk to my parents. I mean, I love my mommy and daddy. They're 71, married 50 years. And I, uh, I often just, the day gets away from me where I just don't, you know, find the time, unfortunately, to, to check in with them, see how they're doing. One is hypertensive, one is diabetic. So I just, I, I, it just loses me sometimes that I just not able to connect with them as much. And so being able to put people around me as accountability buddies, hey, did you check in on your parents today? Talk to my brothers about it. Put reminders in my phone, carve out part of my day to pray and also check in to my folks as well. All of these things are just getting me 2% better in being a better son, checking in, communicating better, something as simple as that. So the reason why I love the 2% way is not so much that it can help you be exactly like me, a Rhodes Scholar, NFL player, a neurosurgeon. It has versatility and usefulness in all aspects of your life, whether you're trying to be a better leader, a better son, daughter, brother, sister, friend, community advocate, uh, mentor. Uh, whatever it may be. So uh, that's that's exciting about it. I like that because at first glance, I think people are going to think, yeah, but I'm never going to be an NFL player. I'm never going to be a neurosurgeon. So what am I going to become 2% better at? But to talk about how we can just use it to become better humans overall. Absolutely. And and what's interesting about the, the book is I, I use my story arc from the Bahamas to New Jersey to Florida State to Oxford, then the NFL, now to Harvard Neurosurgery. But in the story arc, I talk about the challenges that I faced, the very personal human experiences that I've had of self-doubt, uncertainty, feeling like I don't belong in certain circles. I mean, I was a prep school kid from New Jersey going down to Florida where a lot of my teammates were like from the streets, literally, uh, you know, 
do-rags and dreadlocks and gold teeth and just listen to different music. And I'm just like, man, I feel like such an outsider here. Then I go to Oxford as this athlete, this football player in this environment of, man, I'm not as academic as these individuals. I don't know what Gaddafi said at the UN the other day. So what am I going to say in, in our lunch you know, line? And uh, it just it was so, so difficult. So that prejudice, feeling, um, you know, uh, the issues of spiritual dilemmas and and workplace challenges as well. And then relational issues, you know, dating uh, my wife and trying to figure out long distance and how that all works. So there are a lot of human experiences that I put in this book. And I, I talk about how the 2% way was my key. I always went back to it to figure out how do I move forward? How do I continue to lean forward, to take small steps every day and not feel overwhelmed or feel like I'm missing out on anything? And I like that because so often we say, well, I'm going to set this goal for myself. And then we forget that not everything within that goal is all within our control. Life happens. And you talk a little bit in your book about COVID and some of the challenges that you faced with that. But so many things in life we can't control, but I guess we can control. What am I going to do today? How am I going to spend my time? And how much effort am I going to put into becoming 2% better? Absolutely. There are things outside of your control, just as you mentioned, that um, I don't think that our energy should be spent on. Honestly, I feel like, especially in the younger generation, um, where you have social media, uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all these different social media platforms, TikTok, where it seems like everything is happening now for your peers. It seems like they're getting the six-figure paying jobs or they're traveling all over the world or they have all these different cool, neat things happening right now. It's like, boom, these are people who are my age doing something that I'm not doing. Well, that's for show. That's facade. We're not exactly sure what's happening there. And you can't control that. But what you can control is being in your lane focusing on your goals and getting just a little bit better every day. And it doesn't have to happen tomorrow. You don't have to be 100% better tomorrow. You don't have to accomplish all of your goals tomorrow. Just take a small step every single day, break it down piece by piece. And trust me, those small wins, patting yourself on the back and saying, you know what? I was able to do something well today. I crossed something off my list. I was successful today. I made progress today. I made growth today in whatever area of my life it is. That to me is the, the blessed assurance that we are doing what's right. We are fulfilling our purpose and we are always leaning and moving forward. There is a powerful part of your book where you talk about the the pressure that you felt. And then at some point you come to this decision to say, I want to work on getting 2% better according to my own expectations, not these external forces. But it's so easy to fall prey to thinking, okay, I want to live up to other people's expectations, right? It is, absolutely. Uh, you know, especially when you're coming from, for me, for instance, coming from the Bahamas, small country, uh, then having a little bit of notoriety in America based on my football talent. Uh, you know, there was a lot of people expecting to be me to be a Hall of Famer or to win a Super Bowl or to be on TV all the time or to date a certain person or to do certain things. It's just, it was lofty, really, really high. Um, but I felt that if I continued to um, try to make those people um, happy or fulfill their expectations of me, uh, then I would never feel personally fulfilled. I would never feel whole in myself. I'd feel like I was always chasing something that was out of reach in a way. Because they can always move the goalposts and say, well, you got to do a little bit more. You got to be a little bit better. You got to do this. I said, well, why are you determining what I should or shouldn't be? Why are you taking the pen for me and writing my story for myself uh, instead of me you know, changing my narrative and doing it the way I want to. I, I give an example in the book about um, dealing with a patient uh, at National Hospital that uh, and her family uh, that was a bit racist towards me. And, uh, you know, 
old Myron, pre-2% way Myron would have said, you know what? I'm angry. I'm frustrated. I'm, I want no part of this. I can't do this. This is terrible. I would have looked at all the excuses of reasons of why not to. And I would have said, this person boxed me out of this opportunity to not only practice my skills as taking out this temporal low brain tumor, but also managing situations that seem hostile or unforgiving. So instead of that, I said, let me just focus on my craft, focus on being a great physician. Maybe I can turn this family and turn their thoughts about what I look like in my body, my physical body, being black, being a man, whatever the case may be. I can turn their perceptions of what that was to them now to this person that helped save their family member's life. Uh, maybe that can be the step towards, you know, making progress and making growth. So it, it, it's been, you know, an outstanding journey and putting it all together and now having a chance to put it into this book where people can get this sort of in-depth look at, at my life and some of the things that happened through it and how we've used this process, this 2% way, um, you know, to continue to move forward. It's, uh, it's fantastic. And I'm so excited for people to read it. I am too. It's a good book. When you had to make this decision, so in college football, you had to figure out, okay, do I go to the NFL or do I go to Oxford? And you put a tweet out and asked people uh, what they thought. Were you really interested in their opinion? Were you just curious what people were going to say? Were you going to weigh any of those options or the feedback that you got from people? I, I was, honestly. I really, really was. I was, I was, uh, I was at a loss of what I should do because there were so many people saying, go to the NFL. And, and I was like, man, is this everybody? I, you know, people at Waffle House, my friends, teammates, people I went to church with, like everyone was just like, go to the NFL, Mike. I mean, you are hot right now. Your momentum is on fire. You're coming off a great season. You're an All-American. Everyone's talking about you. You're going to get drafted high. I even put my name into this um, this scouting service that underclassmen put um, can use um, to see where they'd be drafted. And it was a first round. And then I called my cousins, Samari Roll and Antro Roll, who already were playing in the NFL. I asked them, where, where am I drafted if I were to go to the Giants or the Ravens where you guys play? And they said, you'd probably go late first round, early second. That's four or $5 million guaranteed. I mean, everyone was saying, go to the league. Oxford is okay, but it's not as good as the NFL. And maybe it was the bubble that I was in. Maybe it was the people I was asking. And, and I wanted to tweet it out to see what the more general populace may have thought about it. And again, a lot of those sentiments were still the same. Go to the NFL. Just a small minority of people said you should focus on education. You've always placed a premium on the word student before athlete. Uh, this is a way to do it in a more magnified level. And, um, and, uh, and, and you should try it. And so after thinking about it, praying, looking introspectively on what I should do, um, what what decision would not only behoove my future interests, but also um, render me a, a role model for other young people to look up to and see and draw sort of their own goals and journeys forward from my uh, my story. Uh, Oxford was the, was the choice. It did cost me in the NFL, cost me millions of dollars, cost me a draft stock, cost me years. I would have played eight, nine, 10 years potentially in the NFL, but only played three. And so there was a sacrifice made. But if I had to make the decision again, I'd make the same one 10 times out of 10. And what was that like then to come back and you do go into the NFL, but as you say, your career was a lot shorter than than it could have been. How disappointing was that, that you were only there for three years? Very disappointing. Incredibly. I, I went to Florida State University with the idea that I would get to the NFL uh, and play a long time. I was an All-American at Florida State. I was the number one high school player in America uh, coming out with 83 scholarship offers. So I've always been either at the top or near the top uh, in my class of, of football uh, players. And now when I get to the NFL, 
I'm on the outside looking in. I'm drafted late. I'm, you know, the 53rd man on the roster. I'm making $50,000 in signing bonus instead of four or five million. You know, I'm sort of the other guy on the team, not the guy, as had been for my majority of my career since I was six years old. Um, it made me regret the decision at the time. Uh, man, why did I choose Oxford? Why did I go over there and eat bangers and mash and fish and chips and go through some terrible weather and put on a sub fusk and a cape like Harry Potter? Like, why did I do that instead of going to the National Football League? But, you know, at the end of the day, I, I, I look at it and say to myself, you know, even though it was a bit of a disappointment, even though I feel like I almost failed uh, in the National Football League, I did not have the same level of success. Maybe it was a way for God to get me out of that league early so that I didn't have any chronic, chronic traumatic encephalopathy or traumatic brain injury or break my finger so I couldn't do operations later on in life as a neurosurgeon and have value to the community in that respect. So maybe there was a, a silver lining that somebody was looking out for me and protecting me uh, in, in, in this first chapter of my life to prepare me and set me up for the next chapter of my life, which happens to be medicine. Yeah. You had decided at a really young age, right? That you were going to be both an NFL player and a neurosurgeon. I did. Yeah. I read gifted hands by Dr. Ben Carson, uh, in the fifth grade. Uh, my brother put that in front of me. Um, my parents put other stories of, of black men in front of me, like, uh, Kofi Annan, Nelson Mandela, um, Malcolm X, Booker T. Washington, WB Du Bois. Uh, Paul Robeson, they wanted me to see, and my brothers, to see ourselves in the stories of, of leaders who look like us, who use their mind, their intellect, uh, their charisma, their personality, their leadership abilities to galvanize massive amount of people towards a common goal, a collective goal. And Ben Carson's story really resonated with me because he was just uh, a terrific physician who separated two twins who were um, connected at the occipital lobe. Uh, and had both of them live. First time that ever was done. Youngest chair of pediatric neurosurgery at Johns Hopkins. Um, had a bit of a temper growing up like I did. Uh, had parents who focused on education, looked like me, and didn't have a lot of money growing up. We weren't very affluent leaving the Bahamas and coming to New Jersey. So I just saw so many parallels in his story. And then him to be able to come from this background and then master this part of our body uh, that is so intricate, where one part produces speech, another part regulates body temperature. Another part moves my pinky and moves my thumb and moves my hands and my feet. It just, it was phenomenal. I said, once I am able to do this, uh, once I'm able to have the requisite training and skills and education, uh, neurosurgery is going to be it just like Dr. Carson. And I don't know if I'll ever be as good as a physician as him, but he's the one that planted the seed of neurosurgery in my head so that one day maybe I can help save a life as well. So then as a neurosurgeon, how do you use the 2% way? I use the 2% way in neurosurgery uh, by preparation. And, and you know, um, especially if there's a, uh, a case that I have um, limited experience in, uh, I will study the scans, the MRI, the CT scans, uh, look at the physical exam of the patient, go over the patient many times. I will go to our medical library that we have uh, available to us at Harvard and kind of go over cases similar to this, read about how other surgeons in other parts of the world have done this particular case, I'll talk to my um, attending physician about the case and sort of tell him or her how I'm thinking about positioning this patient, what equipment we need, you know, when should we start, what should anesthesia be doing, how can the circulating nurses help us, where's my body position going to be so I'm ergonomically centered and comfortable in this three or four hour case, go through all of that in my head. I'd actually go and talk to my wife, who is a pediatric dentist, not a neurosurgeon, but she's in medicine. So I talked to her about the case and she 
you know, she listens to me and she's kind of, you know, on the outside. But if I can explain it to her and make it make sense to her about all the steps that I'll go through, then, you know, it seems, uh, you know, I, I have a good command over the case. Then in the shower, prior to the day of surgery and even the day of surgery, I'll just walk through the case, close my eyes and sort of visualize myself in the room, what I'm going to do, what I'm going to say, where my body going to be, where am I going to rest my elbow so I don't get tired holding a scalpel or holding the suction or holding the tumor forceps, all these different things. So it's a lot that goes into preparing for a case using that 2% way, but it's small steps every day, small steps all the time saying, okay, I'm, I'm improved. I'm better. I'm better. I'm better than I was yesterday, the day before and the day before that. And uh, it's exciting. It's like a new, it's like a challenge. I tell my buddies who I played in the NFL with, I say, look, the, high, the stakes are higher in neurosurgery for sure. The stakes are higher in brain and spine surgery, but the excitement, the adrenaline, the, the, the preparation, the, you know, the attitude you take towards stepping into an operating theater and, you know, performing and doing what you have to do to save this life or to help cure this patient. It's, 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 it's just like I felt when I played football and it's a uh, phenomenal thing. And it's, it's great that I've been able to bless, be blessed with the opportunity to find another walk, another chapter that fulfills me and rewards me uh, the same as my prior life did. Absolutely. I'm a therapist. People come into my therapy office and they want to tackle a huge problem. Maybe they've been depressed for 30 years or they uh, feel like their relationship has completely fallen apart or they need to lose a lot of weight because their doctor is concerned about their health. They get frustrated after about a week or two because they just feel like, oh, I'm not making progress fast enough. And so we'll talk about these small steps and it really creates a snowball effect, right? Once you start, you see one little change, then you think, okay, if I can do this one little step, then maybe I can take one more step and it builds this momentum. And I see it happen all the time, but I'm curious since you're a neurosurgeon, is there any science behind the fact that if we take these little steps that it can affect our brains? Is there anything behind it other than I know that I've seen plenty of momentum in people when they start to do it? No, I think you're absolutely right. I think there is science behind it. We have a lobe in our brain called the limbic lobe, which I'm sure you're aware of. That is the reward pathway. Uh, a lot of times you have this release of neurotransmitters that lets us know that we're self-satisfied by a uh, an act that we've done, or sometimes, unfortunately, it's addiction that you know some people go and seek uh, some nefarious things. But a lot of times when you do do something that is um, fulfilling, that's exciting, that's rewarding, your body tells you that and your brain sort of re releases chemicals that, um, you know, sort of um, signifies and indicates that, that that's the case. And I, I, I believe you 100%. And I really, really support everything that you just said, because I think we are in a situation now, and you know this better than I do, but where uh, you can't, it's almost looked down upon if you celebrate your small wins, or if you're excited about you know, the small progress that you make until you get the end goal, you know, it doesn't matter. Job's not done. I can't be fired up for this. You know, I have to wait for the the big, big pomp and circumstance of the goal to be attained before I can, you know, celebrate or love on myself. Well, I just, I just don't believe in that. And I, and I think through neurosurgery, especially if you're not excited about the way that you can close a wound better than you did yesterday, or you're not excited about the way that you can use the sonopet, which is this ultrasound that can sort of eviscerate tumors and you can use it in a way that's so delicate that now you're not damaging any good tissue, only getting that bad tissue and you've improved and your technique and how to use that. If you're not excited about those small wins, then you know, you're not really looking at, you know, life one by one, day by day to say, this is why I'm here. I've got light shining. I've got my faculties. I'm here to live. I'm here to enjoy it. I'm here to get 2% better and enjoy these, these processes 
And yes, your brain does have uh, a, a way of, of letting us know that, especially in the limbic lobe. So do you recommend people sit down every day and come up with what's my goal today to become 2%, 2% better? Well, I think they could if they wanted to, or if it's a long-term goal, uh, you know, think about where it is that you want to be, whether it be a job or whether it's, um, you know, a, a relationship or whatever it could be. Um, you could have multiple concomitant goals happening at once. It doesn't just have to be all in one. So for me, you know, I, I feel that I've a lot of things that coexist in my body, being a father, uh, learning how to change diapers better because <laughs> I have four kids under the age of two and, uh, and two sets of twins. And so, you know, doing that, like handling the bottles that my wife makes and like, Oh, am I doing this right? Am I putting the right mixture of formula and bottles? in? I don't know, like I'm trying to work through that process, but at the same time, I'm still a mentor at the same time. I'm still the chairman of my own foundation at the same time. I'm still a physician at the same time. I'm still an athlete. So all of these things sort of work together in my body. And so I think it is possible to have multiple goals working. I think it's possible to get 2% better on each thing every day or one a day. And that's fine too. Um, but you know, it's, it's at your pace. You have to be at your rhythm, your pace on beat for yourself. And if it works, then, then let's go for it. And then how do you see progress? Because sometimes when we're just making these small changes and maybe it's 2% today, 2% tomorrow, well, by the end of the week or by the end of a month, we've made huge gains, but sometimes we don't notice it because it's happened so slowly and incrementally. How do you recommend people see, oh yeah, actually I am taking steps in the right direction? Well, I think one, what you just mentioned, I, I think definitely having checkpoints of when to sort of look back and see where you've come from, right? So if it's uh, two weeks or if it's a month, so I want to check in to see, you know, what I've done. But then I also think writing writing it down uh, is, is so important. I like checking things off. I like saying, look, look, man, I, I, I'm going to have an accountability buddy. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to do something and writing it down, making it realistic for myself. And if I'm able to check that off, good, I got that done today, or that's great. Or I just want to study maybe five minutes more for this test that has just been eating at me. And I just don't know if I'm getting it correctly, but let me get five minutes today. Let me get seven minutes tomorrow. Let me go to eight minutes the next day. And let me just keep checking that off, checking that off. That's okay as well. But I really, really like those checkpoints. I do like those month check-ins, two-month check-ins, six-month check-ins, those interval check-ins so that you're aware of you know, the growth that you're making so that you know um, that you're on the right track and, uh, and that you let people know around you, people who support you, people in your network, uh, family, friends, you, you, the ones who love you the most, uh, that help buttress you in your journey, that they realize uh, the, the moves that you're making and the progress and the growth that you're making. Not, nothing has to be done in a silo, in my opinion. We can, we can use the love and energy and support of others uh, to make it. There's no way that I'd be able to be a physician, no way that I was able to be a neurosurgeon uh, in particular, or get through COVID even if I did not have the support of my co-residents, my attendings, my wife, my fraternity brothers. You know, I let them know all the time the challenges that I was having and how I was trying to get a little bit better every day. Read one more article to figure out how this respiratory illness of COVID was affecting our, you know, our um, angiotensin converting enzyme, you know, uh, uh, in, our, in our lungs and different parts of our body. How, you know, getting uh, infectious disease consults or proning a patient would help them recruit more alveoli for uh, better lung capacity and better breathing capacity. I, I'm trying to read a little bit more every day. And, you know, can you guys keep me on check? So I'm I'm doing this as well. We'll do this together. This is a partnership. We're growing all together. And they say, yeah, sure. I'm I'm down for it, Myron. So it's um it's great. And the 2% way is, is so, um, again, versatile and one, a process that in my opinion should not just be um, sought alone and sought as sort of a, 
very individualistic and exclusive sort of process. It's one I think uh, that that requires a team, requires support, uh, requires you to be communicative of what you're doing next and what you want to see for yourself every day, a month from now, six months from now, or even a year from now. Yeah, several important things you said there. We know, just like you said, being accountable to ourselves. If you just put a check mark on the calendar on the days you go to the gym, research shows you'll go to the gym more often just by looking at your own calendar. But as you say, to have other people in our lives to keep us accountable too. It's one thing to say, I'm going to be a better dad, I'm going to be a better son, be a better human, but sometimes we need other people to help hold us accountable. And one of the wonderful things you talk about in your book is all the people that helped you along the way when you were going to your interview to be a Rhodes Scholar. You had tons of people ask you interview questions and then you talk about how grateful you were for people that asked you those tough questions so that you could practice. So then you felt confident walking into the interview. And I think that's so important to make sure we give credit where it's due and to let other people help us along the way. One last question I want to ask you, though, is about meaning and purpose. You talk so much in your book about making sure that you have meaning in your life. It's not just about getting better so that you can brag to other people about how awesome you are, but it's to make sure that you have a more meaning and purpose in your overall life. Absolutely. I, I think, uh, you know, walking a road that is not um, destined to help someone or destined for service, uh, destined for, um, you know, providing opportunities uh, that once were not there, uh, I think that is, in my opinion, um, not appreciating or not using the gift of life that we've been given. Whatever God that you that you pray to, we have to I think all of us can come to an understanding that there have been sacrifices made for us to be where we are right now from names we know, like our parents and maybe our grandparents or aunts, uncles, cousins, brothers, sisters, and names we do not know for all of us to be here as men, as women, as foreigners, as domestic, whatever case may be. And so the repayment to that sacrifice of the effort, people who toiled and strove for us to be here is to exhaust our ability and be the best we possibly can be to ourselves to others and to the community. And so the 2% way in your growth, in your self-improvement, in your edification, in my opinion, absolutely should be towards the greater good, should be towards um, you know, having this, this, this perspective of life of uh, that others around you are, are just as important. One of the most key pieces of advice that I ever received was from my hero, Ben Carson. I was with him in Silver Springs, Maryland at his uh, church and um, I had a friend who connected us and I got a chance to spend Sunday school with him and his wife, Candy. And I expected him to tell me something that, um, you know, Myron, when you're going into cliptus aneurysm, make sure that you avoid, you know, the smaller vessels that are beneath the aneurysm that you can't see because I lead to bleeding. Something, you know, something very scientific or technical. Um, but his advice to me was, Myron, never forget the lunch ladies and the janitors uh, that are in the hospital with you because they matter too. People often overlook them as they're trying to see the CEO or the president. Uh, but you, as a young man, I want you to always keep them in mind. And so every day I, I walk through life uh, with the understanding that I'm not any better than anyone else. I'm not any worse than anyone else. I'm here just with you. And we're going to do this together, arm in arm, LinkedIn. And when I, my colleagues at work, when they see all the lunch ladies and janitors and materials management, food transport people at our, 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 at our uh, hospital, saying, what's up, Dr. Roll? You know, giving me a high five, dapping me, hugging me up. They're like, man, how do you know all these people? I say, look, I say hi to them. I talk to them. I have a conversation with them. It's real. You know, this is this is what it's, life's about. This is what makes life worth the living uh, when you have that level of perspective. And um, and so, yes, the 2% way is about perspective, is about meaning, finding that purpose and moving forward towards it. Uh, because the more, the further you go 
And if you walk in this direction, trust me, there are going to be people who look at your story, who look at your journey and, and see it and want to change their life because of it. That's how Ben Carson was for me. Hopefully I'm like that for someone who picks up my book and finds inspiration in it. But it doesn't have to be on a huge level. It literally can be just people who are just seeing you. You don't even know the people who are watching you as you move through life, as you move through work, as you move through community. I'm like, man, there's something special about that young woman, something special about that young man. And um, and maybe if I can grab a little bit of what they have, uh, then I can be better. And then it's just like a ripple effect. It continues on throughout the generations. Well, I have no doubt the 2% way will inspire and motivate a lot of people. So thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Welcome to The Therapist Take. This is the part of the show where I'll break down Dr. Rule's mental strength building strategies and share how you can apply them to your own life. Here are three of Dr. Rule's strategies that I highly recommend. Number one, focus on what you can control. Dr. Rule talked about how easy it is to get distracted by what everyone else is doing, especially in today's age of social media. You start to believe everyone else is doing better than you are. So it's important to step back and think about what is within your control. You can control how hard you work, how much effort you put into your goals, what kind of an attitude you have, how you interact with other people, and which goals you choose to pursue. When you know what your goals are and the steps that you need to pursue them, you'll feel less threatened by people who are working toward their goals. After all, it's not a competition. You're running your own race, and your job is to get 2% better than you were yesterday not 2% better than someone else. Number two, identify one small change you can work on. If you have a big goal, break it down into something more actionable and make sure it's measurable. For example, it's hard to know if you actually got 2% healthier today, but you can tell if you walked 2% longer. So take a look at your big goals and break them down into smaller, more manageable action steps. Then you'll feel like you're making progress toward a giant goal because all those little things you're doing will add up. And number three, celebrate small milestones. I like that Dr. Rill says it's important to celebrate small victories. Too often, we think we can't celebrate until we accomplish a giant goal. But it's okay to celebrate smaller milestones. In fact, that might help motivate you to keep going. If you're trying to pay off $10,000 in debt, celebrate each $1,000 that you pay off. Just make sure your celebrations don't sabotage your big goals. Don't celebrate a financial milestone by buying something big. But honoring each step you've taken can remind you of how far you've come. That's important because sometimes it's hard to recognize our progress unless we look back and see all the steps that we've taken. So those are three of Dr. Myron Roll's strategies that I highly recommend. Focus on what you can control, identify one small change you can work on, and celebrate those small milestones. If you want more tips for growing mentally stronger and getting better, check out The 2% Way by Dr. Myron Roll. It's filled with a lot more great tips. Thank you for listening to the Very Well Mind podcast. If you found this episode informative, please share the episode with your friends and family and leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the Very Well Mind podcast, you can head to verywellmind.com slash podcasts.